0: You're listening to the Life's Too Short podcast, produced by Partners in Care, home to Central Oregon's only hospice house. Discover more about our new hospice house and other outstanding services at partnersbend.org. The views, information, or opinions expressed in the podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent Partners in Care and its employees. Hello and welcome to the Life's Too Short Podcast. This is Jason Medina
1: and Lisa Hurley.
0: And you are listening to a podcast produced by Partners in Care.
1: Jason, I failed you. I promised you I was going to bring coffee because you brought my... I know, I know, I know. I got a little busy at work and then next thing I knew, time to record, no coffee. So...
0: It's okay. I've got, I've got my nice cup of free water next to me.
1: But if I were to have picked up coffee for you, what would you have wanted me to bring you? Like what would be
0: something with caffeine since I've been up since two this morning.
1: Why have you been up since two?
0: Because my one-year-old dog decided it's whining time at two this morning.
1: For, for what? Is he okay? He,
0: yeah, he's okay. He needed to go outside. And my mind, you know, sometimes you wake up and then you're able to go right back to sleep. This is one where my mind just kicked into high gear. And then, you know, you get a song stuck in your head and you're like, game over. I just, I can't, like, it's on <laughs> eternal loop. I'm like, I might as well just get up and take care of some things.
1: I'm almost afraid to ask this question. What was the song stuck in your head at 2.30 in the morning?
0: My girls have become fans of Joshua Bassett. Do you okay? I, I know, I know. I'm feeling old. I, tell me about it. Do you know Olivia, Olivia Rodrigo driver's license? Do? Okay, yes. So yes. supposedly they were a couple, and then they broke up. And you know, it's, oh, it's about drama goodness. now when it comes to teenage angst pop songs. And so, yes my, yes, my girls have gotten into Joshua Bassett, and in fact, went to his virtual concert a couple of weeks ago via our family iMac. And he has just this one song that he actually filmed the video in Joshua Tree, and this to stay stuck in my head so you're
1: up at 2 30 listening to um
0: the song in my head by joshua bassett who i was gonna say typically typically listen to (laughs) exactly but i gotta ask you because speaking of dogs you are the proud owner of a new puppy
1: so impractical i don't know why we did it except that we do love dogs yes we just got walter yesterday a little French bulldog, so excited. But our other dog, Quiz, who uh, is going to be twelve, it's like, what in the world? When is that thing leaving?
0: Oh my gosh! So <laughs> how old? How old is Walter?
1: He's nine weeks.
0: So were you up? Early this morning,
1: you know, actually, because our kids are in town, we also have Walter's brother Hank, who will be going home with our son and his girlfriend. So we have two puppies at the house right now. They were on puppy duty all night, which has been great. Now I don't want them to leave. Right? Because, exactly. I mean, having a puppy is easy it's, when someone else is getting it, up when every someone two else hours. is there
0: with you. Oh my gosh! Well, congratulations. Ask me, a,
1: ask me in a week. I'll probably have Josh Bassett in my head as soon as I figure out who that is.
0: Well, I am really excited to introduce our guest for this podcast. I finished her book that she had written called Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. Claire, it is wonderful to have you. I'm curious, professionally, do you go by Claire B. Willis, Claire Willis, or just Claire?
2: Claire. Claire. And I have a puppy too. Oh, you tell us. Is it here? And she's a miniature Labradoodle. Oh, cutest thing you ever saw. Oh, oh that's my goodness. wonderful. A lot, a lot of work, but you may hear her at some point.
1: What What is your puppy's name? Bodhi.
0: Bodhi.
2: Love it.
1: So cute.
0: Claire, welcome to Life's Too Short. For our listeners, Claire is a clinical social worker who's worked in the fields of oncology and bereavement for over two decades. She's also a lay Buddhist chaplain lives in Massachusetts and leads therapeutic writing groups as well as maintains a private practice. She's the author of two books. Her first book, Lasting Words, A Guide Defining Meaning Toward the Close of Life, was released in 2014. And her most recent book, Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace, released in October 2020 amidst a pandemic. Claire, that's crazy to put a book out during a pandemic. You think so? I I think it is, but... Congratulations on the release of your second book.
1: Or what better time but to release a book during the pandemic?
2: Actually, it's both because uh, the book was supposed to come out in April 2021. And when the pandemic happened, they pushed it up to last fall because of the pandemic. And getting a book out during the pandemic is not easy because... You can't do live readings. You can't bring 100 books to a bookstore and sell them. You know, it's much. it's been much harder because everything's virtual. And there's an extra step between talking about your book and selling it. I'm just hoping through these podcasts that people think about this book as being a resource for them and resonate with some of what I have to say.
0: Absolutely. And I loved it. And I'm looking forward to talking about it here here in a minute. We would love to hear a little bit about yourself. Are you from the East Coast? Where did you study to become a social worker? All of those great things.
2: Oh, my. I can do more interesting than that. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in New York, and I've been a social worker for about 40 years. And most of my work is with people who are dying or who are grieving and who are living with and dying from cancer. I, I got interested in this area because I was hearing over and over in my bereavement groups When will this end? When is this grief going to end? How would I get through? How am I going to get through this grief during COVID? How am I going to get through the first year? Well, I always feel like this. And I kept answering the same questions. And I thought, oh, I have to write a book that deals with this so that people, when they experience their grief, they understand that this is normal and universal. And I think the privatization of pain where people don't know what others are doing has been a real detriment to people being able to grieve. I think one of the good things about COVID, and there are not many, is that grief has come into the culture. It's come into the Atlantic Monthly, to the New York Times, to NPR. There's all kinds of discussions about the nuances of grief. And I think people have more permission now to express it and name it than they did before. And that is really a wonderful piece of of what's come out of, I think, this pandemic.
1: So, Claire, were you a chaplain before a social worker or was that a simultaneous endeavor?
2: I wanted a way to try to understand about suffering and loss. And so I started to practice Buddhism and then I went and did a training called Contemplative Practices for End of Life out in at a place called Dupaya, which is a Zen center. And I got really interested in end-of-life work. And I've just been practicing. I now have a teacher in New York, and I'm a member of a sangha or a Buddhist community in New York. I find that Buddhism really speaks to dying in a way that other religions don't. And I, I like that. That the idea is that you're enhancing people's ability to be with what is, even though it may not be what they want and strengthening their capacity to be with whatever comes their way is work I really love doing. And that's part of what the book is about, is helping people be with the losses that they experience instead of shoving them away and dampening down.
1: And your oncology work,
2: was that a private practice bereavement? It's um, private practice. I've done work with hospice And now I'm affiliated with a nonprofit that I co-founded called Facing Cancer Together. And we run free bereavement, support, end of life, therapeutic writing, art classes for people living with cancer and who have been impacted by cancer one way or another.
0: You mentioned about Atlantic Monthly and NPR and others who are creating spaces, at least for the conversation about grief. And I'm curious, and you allude to this in your book, Why do you think Western culture in general has not carved out that space for grief?
2: You know, I don't know the answer to that, but I would speculate that I think if you think about what corporations and companies do for people who are bereaved, they give you three to five days off. And I think our economy is based on a certain level of productivity, giving people the time they need to grieve would be excuse me i mean i hate to say this it sounds terrible but i think the belief is it would be too quote unquote costly mm. i think people people don't understand that grief doesn't go away it doesn't end and the way we give people time off it's so it's so unrealistic in terms of the impact loss has on people
1: so grief you know if you had a loss 40 years ago you're saying that grief is still here today just in a different form?
2: Yeah, I think when you first lose somebody, the sorrow is searing. It's all you see. It's it's your whole life. It's the walls, it's it's the floors, it's the ceiling, it's the color of your furniture. It's everything in the room. And then with the passage of time, you develop resources between that searing grief and your life. And so the grief moves from being a searing agony to a dull ache. And I think about it as being a little bit like um, when someone falls and breaks your leg, the pain is searing. You have surgery, you have it cast, then maybe you have PT. And when you walk again on rainy days, it still aches and it doesn't go away. You always remember that, but you learn to live with it differently. And hopefully over time, we find a way to make meaning from what our losses have been and we find out what these losses are we explore what these losses are asking of us that we need to bring into our life and that's how i think about it david kessler wrote a book about the sixth stage of grief finding meaning and i think that's right i think at some point that's how we integrate the loss
0: our senior chaplain of partners in care has this phrase that our hospice patients are actually our best teachers as we take the role of students. And I sense that about you as well with your private practice, with therapy, therapeutic writing groups, leading bereavement support groups. What have the bereaved taught you no. in your companioning through with them?
2: I'll tell you, I'm going to read you something, which is which. if I found this before I wrote the book, I would have put this in the book right in the front. I would have put it. the first thing you see. And I wish I had. These are not my words, but this is what I've learned. Grief, I have learned, is really just love. All that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. So I would say what it's taught me is that grief is not something you try to get over. It's something you learn to live with because you don't want to get over love. Yeah. You want to foster love. And so grief and or loving is important to give full expression to that.
0: Where did that particular writing come from that you just read?
2: Well, it's by Jamie Anderson, but I don't know the source. I've never been able to find the source. Uh. She's a woman and she's an author, but I've I've spent hours online looking for her her work and I can't find it anywhere. I don't even remember where I found it at this point. It might be in Goodreads, without without a source.
1: Obviously, you work with grieving grieving people and your social work background and your chaplaincy and, and your Buddhist background to, to help and guide. But how would someone who is just maybe has a friend or a family member that you just see is in so much pain and, and grieving, what could we do or say or not say to
2: help others? That's such a good question. (laughs) It's funny because I'm giving a talk on what to say (laughs) to some students. I think inviting people, being a willing presence to listen wholeheartedly to what someone has to say about their loss. And I think if you haven't navigated your own way around grief in your own heart, it sometimes can be unbearable to listen to somebody else who's suffering because you may not trust that their journey, that they're gonna be okay. So if you have navigated grief and are comfortable with it, I always say things like, I'd love to hear more about your mother. Would you like to talk about her? Inviting conversation, inviting the willingness to be present, or just saying, how can I be here best for you? But the willingness to be physically and emotionally present with somebody is a gift beyond measure. There's a wonderful article by Rachel Remen called Helping, Fixing, Serving. And people who are grieving don't need to be helped and they don't don't need to be fixed. And I think the question is, how can I be of service to you in this time of sorrow?
0: You had mentioned, tell me more about your mother as one of the ways to respond. Allowing someone to share stories, because I imagine that's what's sitting right below the surface is just wanting to share the stories that, created that relationship that made that connection that meant the most to that person i just don't think we typically go there by default and i'm sure this is going to come up in your talk with the students the platitudes oh they're in a better place or they're not suffering anymore or
1: you're gonna feel better in time just give it time
0: yeah exactly at times times the healer of all things but to just sit there and go tell tell me about her or i've also heard before you sharing your stories of the loved one with that person and saying, you know, your mother was amazing because she used to fill in the blank.
2: That's, that's a beautiful thing to say too.
0: To what the connection was with you?
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's very tricky because a lot of people think that when someone's grieving, the story is I don't mean, I didn't want to upset them. I didn't want to remind them of their loss. And what people don't understand, and it's really important to understand, is that that person's walking around with that loss in their throat all the time, and all they need is an invitation to speak. So we're not really protecting them. We're probably protecting ourselves from the sorrow that might overwhelm us. And I think being clear about that and what your tolerance is for hearing sorrow and suffering from another is an important thing before you open the conversation. It's common, as I'm sure you both know, for people to disappear in the face of someone losing. I hear all the time, the friends I thought were going to be there aren't there. And all these strangers came forward. And I think often what happens is our friendships reshuffle depending on who knows their way around loss, because those people can step forward and the people that don't step back. I remember when I was about 27 or 28 my father-in-law died, and I was scared to death. I'd never known anybody who died. And I didn't know I didn't, I was scared to go to the funeral. I didn't know what you said. I think that's a common response. People are scared. Now, I move towards people who are suffering. You know, I feel like I'm more comfortable with it from my own life and from my own losses. so there's a there's a way you can make yourself more available to people by allowing the grief to sort of carve, a spot in your heart.
0: Absolutely.
1: I'm just thinking about like anticipatory grief. Is there a place for that? Because we don't know, right? How we're going to feel. We think we we can anticipate it. Do you do
2: any work around that? Well, yeah. When I do a caregiver group, there's a lot of anticipatory grief. And even in my cancer group, there's the anticipatory grief around their own death. I mean, a lot of what we talk about is, and and in the group, I lead for people who are dying. There's a lot of talk and anticipation about how they're going to die, what it's going to look like, what kind of suffering they're going to endure. But it's interesting because people think, I think, that if they anticipate a loss, it'll be easier when it comes. And I think that's a myth, that it isn't easier. It might be different, but it's not easier. Even if you're ready for it. It's different than a shocking death or a traumatic death, but it's there's it really no way to prepare for death. It's like, Stephen Levine has a great quote, and he says, "Death. looking at death is like looking at the sun. We look, we turn away. We look, we turn away. If we stare at it, we'll burn our eyes. And I think that's right. That it's the same with bereavement, that we can't stay with the enormity, the full catastrophe of the loss we have that grief comes in waves and it has to. You guys probably know this. There's a common phenomenon called STUG. It's an acronym for sudden temporary upsurge of grief. You're walking down the supermarket aisle and all of a sudden you see a can of tuna fish. And you remember that your brother loved tuna fish. And you break down. And I hear people come into my groups and they'll say, I thought I was doing so well. And then I was in the market and I saw a can of tuna and I lost it. And I said, you didn't lose it. You got it. You fully grasped the full catastrophe of who and what you loved and lost. And we can't walk around in that state all the time. We go up and we have a, a dip and we it's, it's a period of integration. And then we go back up and it's a dip and there's a period of integration. We can't sustain that level of acuity around our losses, you know.
0: There's an irony and a serendipity to me that your book came out during the pandemic. And what I mean by that is all of us experienced losses during the pandemic. That doesn't necessarily mean the loss of a family member or a friend to COVID, but things shut down, rhythms changed, my kids couldn't go to school in person and had to you know, shift online. Do you think we corporately grieved well? Or do you think we didn't realize how much grief we were in?
2: That's a tricky question. I don't think a lot of people have known what grief looked like. So let me just say a couple of things in response to your question. This is in my author's note in the book. David Brooks wrote a wonderful article last April 2020, asking readers to let him know how they were doing. This was at the beginning of the quarantine. And in three days, he had 5,000 replies. At the end of describing the essence or summarizing those replies, he said, There's a river of woe, a river of grief flowing through our culture. And I love that analogy because water seeps into everywhere. So I think all of us have been impacted by this. The problem is that I think a lot of people don't recognize grief for what it is. So grief is not just sorrow and sadness. Grief is anger. It's irritability. It's impatience. It's rage. It's lethargy. It's got as many different expressions as there are people who grieve. It's got dullness. It's got lack of purpose. It's got anxiety, loneliness, depression. It's many feelings. And so what I found is a lot of people were on edge. And I think anger and and rage are very easy places for people who are grieving to go because it gives them a false sense of agency. You get a false sense of being strong. It's easier to be angry about something you've lost than it is to feel the vulnerability and the tenderness of the loss itself and have to be with those feelings. It takes strength to be with helplessness. It takes strength to be with sorrow. It doesn't take much to be irritable and angry and impatient
1: what about someone who it appears that they're not grieving is there a worry there
2: anger can look like not grief I'm doing fine just leave me alone it's done is done suck it up So, to speak, is a common experience. You know, get on with it. I find that a little worrisome. I mean, you go to a funeral and someone will say, Well, how are they doing? Oh, they held up so well. Well, I actually find when people hold up well in emotional situations that it can be a little concerning. What's the need to hold it together? Are you really allowing yourself to feel? Because we can't heal what we don't feel. We have to feel in order to heal. I think for me, I want to offer groups where people are comfortable. Here's something I I often hear in my bereavement group. Someone will say, I wouldn't say this just anywhere, but I'm sleeping with my husband's shirt at night because I miss the scent of him. Or someone said recently to me, this is a family member after she lost a 14-year-old pet companion. She said, I'm sleeping with my dog's favorite toy and you're the only person I would tell it to. Now, I think that those stories aren't public is a travesty because it there's a whole arena of shame that swirls around grief and i think a lot of it has been built up around expectations we have of what grief looks like how long it should last how intense it should be and people are scared to be more open about their grief and i think that's a big part of why i wrote the book many of the people that endorsed the book which was ironic described it as a companion And I love that that was like the highest compliment they could give us because what I wanted was for people to feel less alone in their sorrow after reading the book. And I hope that happens when people listen to me speak, that they feel less alone because everybody in the world is grieving, whether they realize it or not, whether they're showing it or not, because no one's life will return to the way it was. Everybody's lost life as it was because we can't unknow what we know now. And what we know now is that this could happen again. This likely will happen again, and we're living with something that's not gonna go away because herd immunity seems almost impossible, at least today. Something will never be the same, for better and for worse.
0: I love your book as a companion and I feel that normalizes so much, especially your questions in the back, your second section just normalizes so much that for our listeners, if you have ever asked yourself, is this normal? Am I grieving right? Am I supposed to experience this? Am I supposed to hear my loved one's voice or I hear my loved one's voice? Is that okay? You got to pick up this book. It's just such a great, it is a great companion.
2: Jason, that's the supreme compliment you could give me, that the book normalizes grief, which is exactly what I wanted to have happen.
0: Yeah, in the book, you mentioned someone that, that was a strange connection, Lorraine Hetke. Lorraine was the bereavement manager at a sister branch of the hospice I worked at. I spent a half a day with her, drove out to San Bernardino. I think she was working on remembering practices at the time. so She shared the PDF copy of it. And Lisa, because this is not something we've ever talked about, it's really how we continue to relate to those who have passed. How do we remain connected still? And how does that relationship still move forward, even though one party is not physically present?
2: In my bereavement groups, I never say, is anybody talking to their loved one? What I do is I say, how many people are having conversations with their loved one? I normalize it. Like, of course you are. Because yeah. and everybody is. Lorraine calls this remembering conversations. And the other, and I can't think who who's the person responsible for this term, but the other term that's commonly used in the literature is continuing bonds. The relationship with someone you love who dies does not end with their death. It goes on and it changes, and you find ways to bring them with you. So I love the idea of continuing bonds. Yes. And remembering conversations. And I encourage my clients to talk to the people they loved who died.
1: It seems so hopeful to, to think that you can continue a bond because that's probably maybe something why something people are grieving that's that they right. no longer will have those bonds, but you're saying that's not true. Those can continue. Yeah. I like that.
0: Yeah. I was really interested in your chapter on making art that you had in the book and a way to channel grief is by creating. You talk about, how you do lead therapeutic writing. And I wonder, as an artist, as someone who creates, it takes so much energy just to show up to try to create, first of all. And that's on a good day. I can only imagine if I'm grieving, and typically people who are in grief have little amount of energy. How do you then facilitate this creative piece for those who the energy is just lacking at the moment?
2: Well, you make it accessible. And the suggestions in the book are ways that, for the most part, involve objects that are connected to their loved ones. The book offers seven or eight ways to be with and hold grief, and making art is just one of them. So my hope is that people would read the chapters and find the chapters with which they resonate and that feel like will help them bear their grief. But it's not meant to be prescriptive that if you do art, you're going to feel better. It's meant to be a guide to finding your way through sort of like a, um, a buffet table of chapters of different access points to holding grief. So the, the book itself is a way in. I, I can't facilitate that except by what we've suggested in there, which are fairly simple supplies and materials that hopefully would bring them closer to their loved one and get them out of the left side of their brain and into the other side that's not for everybody that's not for everybody so for some people it's writing for some people it's meditation for some people it's gratitude or forgiveness or community finding community there's no value judgment on any one versus another one
0: well, the book is Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. How long did it take you to to write it?
2: I'm embarrassed to tell you. It it took us four years.
0: Oh, wow.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I started writing with a different person and that relationship didn't work out. I think the book was too close to the loss of her mother and she just couldn't withstand it. So I brought in an old friend who had helped me write lasting words and we worked really well together. and. We pulled it together in about two and a half years, but I had a lot of spits and starts with somebody about five years ago, and finally she pulled out. It was just too painful for her. You know, I think one of the things I want to say just before we end is that the loss, we were talking mostly about the loss of people, but one of the disenfranchised griefs that's really important to acknowledge is the loss of pets, because pets are, for people, especially who are childless, they're basically like children. For those of us that have children, they're members of the family. The love you feel for a pet is pure, simple, and unconditional. And most of us don't have that kind of love for people because our relationships with people are much more complicated. But there is a purity of love with an animal that's only possible with an animal for people. It's a grief that when someone loses an animal, there's no way the culture acknowledges that or holds it. It really makes bearing the grief a lot harder for people who have lost little loved companions like that. So I just want, I want to mention that especially to both of you since you're both animal lovers.
0: Well thank you and and being in Central Oregon, it feels like the dog capital of of America anyway. Oh really Once you move here, someone gives you a dog is I think how it how it works.
1: A dog and a Subaru.
0: <laughs> yes, a dog and a Subaru.
1: I had both.
0: <laughs> then you would fit right in right here. Claire,
1: you need to move to Bend, but I know you say you love where you live. If you want to get out of those like humid summers. <laughs> Thank you. We don't have bugs here, by the way.
0: Well, Claire, it has been a pleasure. Again, I want to remind our listeners her book, Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Lost to Peace. I imagine our listeners can get the book wherever they typically buy a book.
2: Amazon? Yes, of course it's at Amazon, but I really would urge people to review on Amazon and to buy locally, support your local independent bookstores. They need more help now than they ever have.
0: Absolutely. I love that, yes. And do you have a website that we can direct our listeners to? to
2: Openingtogrief.com.
0: Openingtogrief.com, wonderful. Well, Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on the podcast.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, Jason and Lisa. It was fun talking to you guys.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's our pleasure, but thank you, thank you. Again, openingtogrief.com is the website. Opening to Grief is also the book. Support your local bookstore. I completely am on board with that. And from that, this is Jason Medina.
1: And Lisa Hurley.
0: And you've been listening to Life's Too Short.